This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Mildred and Alan Zook of Bern. They are consummate givers. Constant in their commitments, they have been married for 50 years. Throughout that half century, Alan has been involved either driving school buses for Burn Knox Westerlo or supervising the district's transportation department. He has also served Burn as supervisor and as a town justice. Millie taught elementary school children for 35 years along with coaching cross country and track and then went on to earn certification as an emergency medical technician to help with a Helderberg ambulance squad. In their 70s now, they are still volunteering. Just in chatting a little beforehand, I heard from Millie that she said your life is in storage because you are moving. Where and when are you moving? Well, we um, sold our home uh, in Bern um, back officially in April, and we are having a townhouse constructed, a new townhouse in Glenmont, the town of Bethlehem. And so because our new townhouse is not completed, um, all of our, everything we own basically is in a storage unit in Glenmont. Oh my gosh. So uh, <laughs> fortunately we are able to um, uh, find a um, furnished apartment in Bern from folks that we know and who don't normally rent the apartment out. So I guess I don't want to give the, give their uh, name to any out and about. But um, fortunately, the, the apartment we're in is furnished in Bern, and we are here. We've been here since April. Uh, it's a little smaller than our house was, of course, uh, but uh, we are surviving and um, probably and we're comfortable. And probably sometime mid uh, our guess at this moment. Mid-October, we will, um, you know, that's a guess, mid to, mid to late October, we will be um, uh, moving to our new home in Glenmont. Or at least closing. Or at least at least closing on the house in Glenmont. Oh, well, I hope you're soon in your new home, but I find this shocking. <laughs> One of the things, I read Ashlyn um, Hanley's book about Hilltown Elders, and she had in there that you, Millie, like to tease Alan because he's never lived off of Canada Hill Road. That's right. So I'm just... So this, this is a first step away from Canada Hill Road was to the apartment in Burns. Yeah. So let's I'd like to go way back in time to the beginning of both of your lives. And I know more about Alan's than I do about yours, Millie. Mm -hmm. But if you could each just kind of give me a sketch of what your families were like, where you grew up, and then we'll get to how you got together. <laughs> uh, I, I have uh, two sisters, they're both younger than I am. And I grew up in the uh, city of Boston, in the Dorchester area. And uh, I you know, would walk to school and, uh, you know, we were involved in church and, uh, you know, other uh, youth activity groups over in, in, in the Boston area. 
Now that you say that, I can hear it in your lovely accent. I know. I I go on the ambulance and people will say, oh, you're not from around here. I said, no. (laughs) That's that's where I grew up. uh, And my family still lives back over in uh, the Boston area there uh, to the South Shore. And And then my sister lives right downtown Boston. And what did your parents do as you were growing up? Where did you get this sense of contributing to the community was that part oh, um, of your yes we my my mother and father were very active in the church and they were on all kind of uh, committees over there in Boston and I remember uh, my mother's uh was known for her uh, lemon meringue pies <laughs> oh that's a really good pie and it's hard to make those little things on top stand up mine always then, yeah. fall flat right and then, I went to school in, uh, you know, in in the uh, Boston public schools, and then I went uh, up to college, and I went up to Gordon College up in Wareham, Massachusetts, uh, and that's how I met Alan. Uh, my roommate, uh, Karen, she's now Barber, but she used to be Karen Coffey, lived over in Westalo, and she was my roommate, and uh, Cliff Barber. Uh, went to school with Alan and Karen, and he and Alan went up to high school together. Oh, yeah. And then Alan and Cliff went up to uh, Clarkson together. And Cliff came over to see Karen because they were dating, and he met me, and he went back and told Alan that I have the girl for you. And so <laughs> Alan and I dated once a month for two years. And we would either come, I would either go to Clarkson or he would come to Boston. And sometimes we would meet in Bern and uh, I would stay at his parent's home. Oh my gosh. I love that story. So it was a roommate who was kind of the the Cupid. (laughs) And And then it was a few years later after we were married, we met them on the Mass Pike and, uh, Cliff said to us, so how's the marriage going? He was concerned about how we were doing. And I said, it's going great. Oh, yeah. How many now, years have you been married now? One. Oh, yeah. I'd say that's going really great. 51, 51 in, in, December. in December. December 51. Uh, yep. That's a rare, rare thing. Congratulations. Right. Wow. That's just terrific. So now let's hear your boyhood story. Well, I um, grew up on the family dairy farm in in Bern. Uh, my folks uh, owned a dairy farm on Canada Hill Road, and uh, they um, it was a it was a family farm. Actually, my father was in partnership with another individual, um, and they were World War II buddies. And um, so they, about the time of my birth, nineteen forty nine. They um, purchased this farm together and uh, they were in partnership for about uh, eight years. And then uh, my father bought out the other partner. And so it was my father and mother primarily. And I was still a youngster. Uh, so they would um, basically they did the farm themselves. And uh, in summers, when the summer summer field work was happening, uh, they would hire um, uh, basically friend, uh, children of family friends who were older and stronger than I was, who help out you know with the hay and and those kinds of activities. And then when I got to be older and stronger, 
then I could help out. But my father would still hire uh, seasonal, uh, seasonal as in July, August, um, neighborhood kids and who all had an agricultural uh, lifestyle like, like we did because there were so many of us back then in the 50s and 60s who had, you know, uh, contact with farms, knew farming, knew how to operate farm equipment, and it was familiar to them. So they they just um, worked together, and then I grew up and went off to college, and well, the rest such is history. A, let's not go quite so fast to college. That's just such a beautiful house. I know Duncan and Laurie Searle live there, right. and I've been there. And just what a beautiful setting to grow up in. It's yep. just, yeah. you feel like you're on top of the world. In fact, one of Laurie's paintings is kind of the iconic symbol for our newspaper. It's of one of the fields that you must have farmed. It's yeah. All right. yeah. Just yeah, we, the farm the farm was 250 acres that my dad owned. Uh-huh. And, and then we um, usually people, neighbors that were not actively farming uh, had uh, many acres of property. So my father would uh, work those fields. And uh, so we probably worked uh, another uh, one or 200 more acres on top of what my father owned. And um, he grew the grain and harvested the grain. And uh, we used, uh, again, back in the 50s and 60s, um, the local Agway store, currently owned by Steve and Sue Lendrum, there was a water-powered uh, grinding mill. So we would take oats and corn uh, to, the, to the mill in, in bulk fashion. And then they would grind it up by water power and then re-deliver it back to us in, in, in cattle, grain, cattle grain. Wow. And Things have so, really changed, haven't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, then uh, actually continuing on, when, when they stopped, they, as in Milton and Ruth Hart, stopped grinding the feed, we would take those same items out to Middleburg, to the Agway out in Middleburg. And I was old enough then to drive the family, the farm pickup out to Middleburg and they would grind it up with, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking electrical power. There was no water right there. Well, it was on the river, but it wasn't really water powered. And they would grind up the feed and deliver it back to us in, in terms of for cattle grain. But we would still raise all our hay, raise all our uh, corn um, and pretty much self-sufficient farming. Yeah, that's just sort of a bygone. I have a funny story. I knew that um, Alan was in love with me. One time I came out to visit him and I was out in the barn and he said, I want to introduce you to someone. And I said, "Okay." And he lifted the cow's uh, face and uh, they had named her Millie. Oh, (laughs) that's just a wonderful story. Oh, I knew it was true love. Yes, you had a cow named after you. Um, you know, not everybody can say that. I think very few of us can say that. <laughs> I think that's a great story. Well, I looked up the obituary I wrote for your father because I interviewed you for that. And I was just so struck. You said he wouldn't show off his strength. But he could throw a hay bale like people throw a shot butt. Some of the teenagers yes. tried to do it. They couldn't come close. <laughs> that's, that's true. And I never could do it. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, I suppose all of us think our, our parents, our fathers are the strongest people we know. But I know that he was strong. And then you also talked about some of your family history. And I just wonder now with the war in Ukraine, if you have any, I think both your father's parents came from Ukraine. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Well, you know, all the years we thought we were Ukrainian. Yeah. But uh, I think actually it was more like Austria. Oh. Those, those two countries were um, next door to each other. Yeah. But my parents always spoke Ukrainian when they didn't want us kids, their kids, my siblings, to understand what they were talking. So they so they would speak in Ukrainian so that we wouldn't understand their private conversations at the dinner table. Well, but, that's... Uh, of course, time went on and we, you know, both my sisters and I, we could kind of pick up a few words and, and it, sooner or later it was pointless for them to, to uh, try to keep their conversations <laughs> secret. Um, but um, uh, so ba basically we, we don't speak Ukrainian, but we always thought of ourselves as Ukrainian. Uh, but technically we were Austrian. Okay, good to, to get that record straight. But so now let's move to after you've fallen in love, <laughs> the cow's been named cow. Millie, and you settle on Canada Hill Road. Um, yes, the, um, the farm where the Searles are now uh, was, was really a two-family house. Uh-huh. And the, um, the, you know, the, the person, my, the family my father bought out, the partnership, always maintained the second kitchen, the second living room, the second bathroom, the second bedrooms area, bedroom areas. So when we were married, that's where we first lived in the other half of the house with my parents. And uh, uh, we were there from 19, well, we were married in 1971, December, and uh, about three year, two or three years later, uh, we, my father gave us some property on the family farm. And we had a home constructed by um, a builder by the name of Charles Holaska, uh, who um, built our our home um, that we just sold um, over on property that was part of the dairy farm. And uh, taking it one step further, when my father and mother finally retired, they kept some land and they had a retirement home built on additional land from the family dairy farm. So and we were basically across nearly across the street from which from each other uh my parents and and millie and i and our and our kids what a wonderful way for your kids to grow up you know to yes, have their grandparents right they they could uh, when they got old enough to walk it was it was maybe a tenth of a mile apart but we could see the, the two houses so they would walk um from our house to their house and uh you know without fear and um they would uh, just enjoy being with my parents. And my parents, of course, loved having them uh, with them as well. Wonderful. Well, let's talk a little about your very long career with transportation at Burn Knox Westerlow. Yes. And I'll never forget, I was kind of a young reporter and I went in to talk about journalism to one of the elementary school classes and I mispronounced your name. Instead of Zuck, I said Zuck. And the whole classroom mm -hmm. 
all of these kids, it was a double classroom, they all shouted it out correcting me. So, I mean, you were really and still are well known at all levels of the school. So just tell me a little about how you started that career and what kept you at it so long. Well, really, um, my father... uh, became a school bus driver when uh, my sisters and I were still in high school. Actually, probably even, we're probably in middle school, you know, probably back that far. I'm trying to think, no, that would have been in the, um, let's see, 49, late, late, say early 60s on. My father was a school bus driver. Basically, the reason for that was uh, when you were, a school bus employee, a school employee of Bernox Westerlo, school bus driver, you were eligible for uh, medical benefits and, of course, uh, the pen, the pension plan that came along with it. That was kind of minor. It was it was really to get the the hospitalization benefit package that went with the, being a, a school bus driver. So anyway, uh, that's why he became a school bus driver. So uh, his routine was uh, get up about four o'clock in the morning and uh, do, do the morning dairy char- chores, you know, milking, feeding, that kind of thing. Finish up, uh, uh, you know, a little before 7 a.m. and then tear off to go drive school bus from like 7 till 8.15, 8.30 in the morning, and then come home and uh, do more chores and field work and dealing with the dairy you know, the, the, all of the work that goes with operating a dairy farm. And then at two o'clock in the afternoon, go back down and drive school bus again, milk the cows in the afternoon. And, uh, about, uh, seven 30 at night, um, figure his day was done. So working, you know, a 15 hour day for decades. Yeah. Wow. It's, I and get then, exhausted just listening yeah, to it. And then uh, I still remember when I was old enough to, you know, to, um, he, he got to the point where I could milk the, I could milk the cows without him. And uh, I tried to follow along his daily routine for like a weekend. And when Sunday came, I was exhausted and uh, I was a, you know, teenage strong kid. And here he was an adult and had been doing this for decades and I could barely do it for a weekend. So uh, yeah. that's that goes to tell you how much uh, effort and and uh, that he that he had. So anyway, usually, of course, the responsibility of the school bus driver was to, um, you know, keep your bus clean. So Saturday mornings was a, a break, a break in the, the routine. So we would go down to this bus garage and wash his bus and clean it up and get it ready for the following um, week. And so I would tag along and I'd help out. And uh, uh, it was just, uh, that's probably my first real, you know, involvement um, back in the uh, early sixties with the school bus business. And then of course uh, went off to college and, um, Graduated in 1971 and uh, was looking for employment and um, it it never worked for me, but I was an insurance salesman for a brief period of time. And after I finished selling all my friends and relatives and I really had to go to work to actually try to work hard to sell insurance, I decided this was not the work for me. It just 
it wasn't me at all. I wasn't comfortable with it. I wasn't good at it. So um, um, I helped out on the dairy farm for a period of time. And then the person who was the transportation uh, director um, moved on to other employment. And so a job opening was created uh, in the, let's see, 1972-ish. And so I applied for the position and was fortunately hired. In, uh, and I became transportation director in uh, July of 1972 for Bernox Westerlow. So I stuck with it for, oh, 30, 36 years. Retired in uh, uh, this, uh, July of 2008. I think I'm giving them the right era. That's about right. Uh, I retired and I, I had a retirement job with Capital Region BOCES. Uh, and um, then the person who replaced me um, it didn't work out. So I went back to the transportation of Bernox Westerlo as a supervisor uh, until the following April. So I was retired working for Capital Region BOCES and doing the transportation job all at the same time. So you're so, following your father's footsteps, a very long well, work day. That's probably how I, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and then uh, let's see what else happened. A while I was kept, when the new supervisor came along, by then I was, I was starting to substitute as a school bus driver. You know, even though I always had credentials as a school bus driver, it was really, I was a last minute fill-in, a substitute. So when the, um, when the new supervisor came along, I just continued on as a substitute driver. Uh, not ne nearly every trip, but a lot of trips. Uh, so that went on for a while. Uh, let me think. And then in April of 2013, I was appointed as uh, town justice. Um, and of course, you know, the backstory in all this, I was a town supervisor from, uh, let's see, uh, April uh, 1984 to 2000. I was town, burn town supervisor. Yeah, well, let's not skim over that. <laughs> let's go back because you started, didn't you start as a town justice before you were a supervisor? Yeah, I was a town that's right. I seem uh, to remember like the New York Times interviewed you. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, I was a town justice uh, like 1980 to uh, 1983. Okay. Uh, and of course, once, once you're a town judge and then you uh, decide you're going to run for another office, you need to resign. You, you can't continue as a town justice and run for another position. It's just, uh, it just, the ethical rules of being a town justice. So I resigned as, as town justice in 1983. And um, so I was town, su town supervisor, working as transportation supervisor at Bernox Westerlo. Uh, also had a little part-time job. Uh, uh, I hauled uh, raw milk from local dairy farms on the weekend. So um, yeah. Well, old, yeah, you say. I always had, a, always had a couple jobs. Yeah, but tell us a little more. 
more about the town government because I covered Bern in the era yeah. when you know the hill towns as a group had hired coal layer Trumbull to do revaluation, yeah. and you had packed halls with Harry yeah, Gary <laughs> leading the oh, charge, yeah, you, and you always you know, kept calm and you always yeah. kept the crowd. You didn't have the sense that I get today of this polarization or this nastiness in politics. There were certainly people with very strong viewpoints that were opposed to each other, but yet there was, you you maintained a kind of civility in the meetings. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of it. And I think one thing uh, that I do remember mostly is we would have, and some of those discussions, especially in the audience and in the parking lot after the meeting, were pretty heated. Yeah. <laughs> but you, when you, when that discussion was over, you were still civil to each other. We when shook you, hands. And we shook. We shook hands. We would meet each other in, uh, you know, the old Maple. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, before the Maple on the Lake, the old Maple when when Joe, uh, Joe Golden Golden, had it, yeah, when Joe Golden owned it, and uh, wherever wherever you would meet, and you were si- so civil, and you would just uh, strike up a conversation with, you know, how's it going, um, how, how are the kids, how you doing, and it was just a civil conversation away from politics. So what politics. what's changed? Both of you could answer that. I mean. Um, well, it's I don't know if it's it's unique to burn. It's just, you know, from what you read in the media, it's it's all all forms of government. Um, and it's very unfortunate. It, it's really unfortunate. Probably the reason I, I was so civil was my background as a town justice, because you, you could have some very difficult um, situations, but you needed to maintain your um professional, ethical standards. And also from dealing with parents. And, and you know, of course, and of course, dealing with, with, yeah, true. That's true. Dealing with, um, you know, the administration, students, parents, coworkers. Um, you, you just, um, I know but you, it becomes, you learn, you, you learn, I guess, you know, I, I tell everybody I could never do anything. I really have no skills. I'm not a mechanic. I, I, I'm, I, I watch these people repair mechanics. Now I'm watching these people repair things that I couldn't even begin to do. And, but what I could do was I would say, um, Mr. Mechanic, I really, really need this bus in like an hour. Do you think you guys can drop what you're doing and get this, get this project? I I really need a bus. We got a lot of trips out tonight. I need, I need that bus. And they would do it. And it worked. Well, it seems like you had a basic regard for people's humanity. And I wonder if you could both comment on this, because my thought is, if there's any hope at all for us mending this divide in our country, it might come from the kind of work that both of you do in the community. Um, Our readers might recognize Millie's name from a column she writes, um, what is it called? Volunteer Voices to to fellow people in on the ambulance uh, work, which is remarkable. It's 
fewer and fewer places now have volunteers helping their neighbors. They hire professionals, which is, of course, a necessity. I'm not critical of those towns at all, but just if you either of you could talk a little about what it is that's made you volunteer all these years, as well as is there any hope <laughs> in this idea that when people come together as a community for the common good, like with some of your church projects or with the ambulance, that kind of thing, just if you could talk a little about what the culture's I, like I there. I think we both grew up in families that uh, were community oriented. Uh, Alan's mother was on the uh, school board and she was on the uh, cooperative extension. And so she she did not only the farm work, but she went out and did volunteer work as well. And my parents were involved in, in that. And I think that. You know, that just um, was just instilled in us that you try to go out and help your um, your community members. And, and I can I can almost pinpoint the event that made me get involved. And uh, basically, uh, it was probably around 1977. And we were, were, were members of the Burn Reformed Church and we were at an activity, not a worship service, just an activity in our church hall, and the fire siren rang. And of course, if you know where the Burn Reform Church is and where the old firehouse was, the structure is still there, it's not a firehouse any longer. Basically, every man left our activity to go fight the fire, except me. And I said, well, where are all these how come I'm not going and they're all going? And that's when I joined the fire company. And that's what started. Oh, that's a great story. So there was this culture of people caring. And I, I can I can riff off that because I remember one of these really heated meetings in the midst of Reval, a town board meeting where a siren went off and these people who had been arguing with each other against each other got up. They weren't a siren then it was beepers. They were beepers. And they, they left as one to go help a neighbor. (laughs) It's just such a metaphor that I loved. Well, tell us, Millie, how did you get involved in the ambulance? What, what drew you to that? Well, uh, Alan's parents uh, started to age, age out. And uh, we called them the ambulance more and more. And uh, we decided that uh, the people were giving to the community and we decided that we wanted to give back to the community as, as a thank you for coming when Alan's parents needed them. And so we started and um, I had been teaching school and I had decided that I was going to go back and get my RN degree because the governor at the time was giving out early incentive. And so I, I had applied early incentive for retirement and I had um, been accepted to Maria College. I was going to get it, become an RN. And then the year I decided to go, the incentive program didn't come out. And mm. so I decided, well, I'll use my uh, my uh, love for uh, medical work uh, by doing an EMT. And so I became an EMT uh, about uh, three or four years after I had joined uh, Heldeberg. That's a lot of training, isn't it? It is. 
Yeah. Is, yes. And what it's, had you been teaching? What What was your... I, I taught uh, elementary school, fifth grade, second and third. And then I coached uh, cross country and track. Wow. So there's another real service career <laughs> that you did for how many years? I taught for 35 years. Oh, my gosh. So both of you have... A rare constancy, not just the 50 years of marriage, which is rare these days, but a single commitment to a career that so many people bounce around these days. And it's just... Would you would you say consider that we're in a rut because we don't know? <laughs> I, I consider it a commitment, which is, I think, a very valuable thing. But is it going to be hard for you, even though I know Glenmont isn't that far from Bern when you're so. Well, the, uh, the funny thing yeah. is, we're already volunteering, volunteering down, down in Bethlehem. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we uh, for the past two weeks, we have been going down to Bethlehem one day a week. And uh, Alan's becoming a uh, driver for the senior van. And I'm training to be an attendant on the senior van. And so we've done two weeks and we have one more week of training. And then we'll be on our own and able to go out and take folks to the uh, grocery store or to activities or to doctor's appointments. Oh, that's wonderful. Actually, we've been volunteering now. And so what our goal is, is to, uh, you know, get one or two days a week volunteering down in in Bethlehem. And so that, you know, it won't stop. It will continue on with our volunteer lives. Well, isn't Bethlehem lucky to have you? (laughs) Yeah, they they were so thrilled to, to see us. And then um, I had the opportunity to, they asked me if I'd like to work as an EMT, Um, but a lot of them are paid and down in Bethlehem, I I didn't really want to have to stay at the station for my whole eight hour shift. I enjoy being on call in Bern Mm -hmm. and just going when this pager goes off. Yeah. And so I decided that, you know, a new change was needed. And so now we're going to help uh, with the senior bus. And, and the, it's, it's still rewarding. And the, the other th- the other thing we notice when we do a transport, and the, Millie's EMT and, many, you know, I drive and I'm a lifter and a, a gopher. But we, what we also notice is we are some of the oldest uh, volunteers that we see or, uh, or, or whether volunteers or paid people. True. Um on these responses, you know, we're old enough to be the parents of, of all these responders or some of them, the grandparents <laughs> of these responders. And it really is, there, there comes a time in your life when you say, you know, really this, we're too old. I won't say we don't, we don't feel old, but physically it's, it's pretty demanding. And the, uh, you know, to respond to an ambulance, especially in our COVID, it probably started pre-COVID, but it's really becoming more of a commitment uh, since COVID. Uh, you know, an, an ambulance uh, call for us uh, is three and a half to four hours. Um, many times we, you know, do the transport and then we wind up at the emergency room and we wait an hour or two for our patient to be transferred from our care to the emergency room care. And uh, so it's it's a big commitment. And when you're out and about at uh, 
all hours of the night, it, it's it's work. It's actual, you know, it's rewarding, but it's exhausting. I can and imagine. I, I, I actually, I can imagine, but it just seems like that most people would think you're in your 70s, right? Is that yes. you're yeah. both in your 70s? And when I was hearing about the senior van work, I was thinking, wow, <laughs> there are probably people younger than you that you're transporting. Oh, there are. There are. So, there are. I mean, so much of what you do just seems to be your whole attitude towards life. Um, you yeah. know, this idea of, of being, being able to contribute and thereby staying young, if not in years, yeah. in attitude. So, Right. Right. And that's what I said the first time on there. I said, oh, look, most, some of these people are my age. <laughs> and that's well, what we noticed with the ambulance squad. All of a sudden we're taking these these folks who are way younger than us and we're lifting them and, you know, bringing them downstairs and uh, across the lawn in, in a snowstorm. And, and we're older. <laughs> we're older than they are. Yeah. And we're still we're still doing it. Well, I really admire you. Do you have any closing thoughts? Our time has just flown. Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Advice or reflection? Um, you know, I think maybe from from my point of view, um, our family, I have two sisters and myself. I'm the oldest of the kids. We always ate our meals. Well, it was hard with my with the dairy farm, but we always ate supper together. I'll get we always ate at least one meal together, no matter what. And uh, that that was, I think, pretty good. But that was we, pretty we did, good. We did that with, with our, our own, own children, children too. We, we had breakfast together, together and uh, dinner. Dinner together. You know, midday, midday maybe not. Well, of course, when they when they were in school, it definitely right. was not. But definitely, we ate together. Uh, we celebrated uh, how well, even even though they're adults now with their own kids, our, our grandchildren, you know, we're still we're still together. We still even though they're like 50 miles away, we're still uh, together. And I, th I think it's important that, you know, the you, you sit together as a family and, and do family things, you know, not just work, but do family things together. I think that brings, you know, your whole family closer together. And so we've, we've been blessed with our girls right. are, um, you know, very, very close to us. I think I, the other thing I would bring up is I, I still remember kind of growing up. I was probably in my teenage years and a decision would come along uh, regarding the farm. And, uh, you know, my father would. He would say, well, I'm getting getting ready to buy uh, a new furnace for the house. And I said, Dad, why do you want to buy a furnace when you are shoveling silage out of a silo? Why don't you buy a new silo with a self-unloading piece of equipment and not work so hard? So he said, oh, you think that's a good idea? And I said, well, yeah. So he did it. And uh, made me feel good. So this idea of family, it isn't just parents handing down to children. It's children also contributing and coming right. up with an idea that yep. could further the good of the family. Of the, oh, I love that. Family farm. And so we, we were fortunate. Uh, I was fortunate. My parents funded my college career. I had a tiny, tiny college loan 
by today's standards, it, it would be, a, it's like nothing. Uh, but, uh, and then we did the same thing for our kids. We, we funded uh, their, their, their higher education. Wonderful. But I think the big issue is, you know, just getting together with family. And, and it's hard in this day and age when um, parents have to work two jobs. And to, not, not near to, the, not at home. And to make ends meet. We, we, were, we were home. Right. Our work was there. Our work was the farm. And, uh, or even school. Or school. Or, or for your own we careers, you were both probably available in the evenings. Exactly. Right. Of course, I was, was out and about. I went out and about to a meeting. Yeah. And so that that kind of took its toll a little on the kids. That you know, where's dad going tonight? You know, is is dad out again tonight? So that was a little bit. You know, it took a little bit of a toll. But we we spent uh, every available time together as a family. Well, wonderful. I can't thank you enough for sharing this. And I think Burns' loss is Bethlehem's gain. So. <laughs> I know. They're excited. They called us today about uh, next training. week already. More training. Oh, wow. Well, thanks so much. 